Now, a number of you will know that beginning of this year, I won a car. A car which I had hoped by now I would have sold. But it's actually not even still quite ready to do that. There's just been so many things that have just gone wrong along the way. They've only been minor things. But anything that needs to get done, at best they say one or two weeks until you can even book it in to get it done. And I thought this week, all going to get sorted out. They were going to put the original factory wheels back on. The guy who had been fixing up the suspension, um, he was about to go away for a while for, for his birthday. So I thought, I'm not going to waste any more time. I'm going to order the wheel bolts because the ones from the other wheels didn't fit onto it. Get it all ready. All will be sweet. Looked up, found the right size. Get online, order them. Great. Took them down to the shop. Perfect. I knew what the correct size was. But did I click on the correct size? Yes, they fit the holes. Yes, they had the right thread. But they were also an extra centimetre too long. Which means that they not only did they go where they needed to, they went an extra further than they needed to, which when they went to put the car in reverse, surprise, surprise, it didn't move. It was pushing on things which it shouldn't. Now, I thought I had the right thing. There is a right and a wrong way to do things. Just because something fit or you thought it was the right thing doesn't necessarily mean it is the right thing. Nor does it mean that it's going to have a good outcome. In the same way, there is a right and a wrong approach to Jesus. A way that you might think is right may not be right. Now, Jesus is more than just his name. It's also a description of who he is. He is a saviour. He is the saviour. Often referred to as the saviour of the world. That doesn't mean, though, that automatically and instantaneously every single human being who's ever been born is instantly saved. That's not what it means. It's not like somebody who has never placed their trust in Jesus is going to die and wake up and go, wow, how good is this place? Never thought I'd end up here. Throughout the Bible it is very clear. Jesus has power to save anyone. But that wonderful and gracious gift is received through repentance and faith. John chapter 3, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, also makes it very clear that nobody will escape judgment by any other means than faith in Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Just a little bit later in that chapter of John chapter 3, he spells out that believing doesn't just mean to agree with some certain bits of factual information about Jesus. If you believe something, you live in accordance with it. In verse 36 it says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son will will not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. 
John is highlighting that to genuinely believe is not just to believe facts and be unchanged by it, but there is a connection between belief and obedience. Now sometimes I think when we're sharing in the gospel, there's a question that goes through our mind. Who is most likely to believe? Now we might start weighing up in our minds, who is most open to talking about spiritual things? Who is least resistant? Or we might think, whose life is kind of as close as possible to what the Christian life looks like? It's going to cost them little, it's like a small extra step. Now we kind of think in our mind that if there's a, the cost is little, the person is going to be more likely. Now, there's nothing wrong with observing signs that God might be at work in someone. The fact that they're willing at least to dialogue in that sense might be a sign. But it's a major problem if you only speak of the gospel to people who you perceive that God can work in their life. It's a major problem if you've drawn up a ledger, even if it's in our mind, of those who God can save and those we believe God cannot save. Because, brothers and sisters, you do not have a weak, limited saviour who has some that are in the too hard basket, too wicked, too sinful. So please don't live like we have a weak and limited saviour. We have a mighty saviour, There is nobody that he cannot save. There is no situation that is too hard for him. The phrase lost cause does not exist in Jesus' vocabulary. In this passage we see Jesus heal, save, many who the world would say lost cause, too far, too much. And his language toward them is not begrudging, but rather affectionate and personal. And at the same time, we see some who are like the likely prospects whom Jesus is unable to do anything amongst, to whom he is impersonal and distant. We see Jesus has all power, all knowledge and all wisdom. And as we work our way through this passage... We'll see the emergency, the interruption, the disrupted funeral. Jesus is gobsmacked. That must have come from the Aussie Bible, that idea. And we're going to look at power and pessimism as we wrap things up. Firstly, the emergency. Now, there's one day that's going to remain in my mind for a long period of time. November 15, 2019. I think both of our kids were in family daycare, got a call to go pick up Miller, was told she was unwell, brought her home. She just could not stay awake. Sarah just had a night shift the night before, so she was asleep. I didn't want to bother her, thinking, what what should I do? So I took a picture of her. I sent her a message. thought that if she happens to wake up and look at her phone, she might want to have some input into the situation. In the end... We decided we should take it to hospital. It was the sickest we've ever seen her. And I think it was by the time I got to about Laurel Bank Park, Miller went entirely unresponsive. 
Now, you're, I'm the only person in the car. There's no other adult. I'm at the front. She's in the back. You're not on the, even in the left-hand lane. What do you do? You're like, it's going to be a shorter trip to get to hospital than it is to wait for an ambulance to get here. That's probably only five seconds, but it seemed like a lifetime that she was totally unresponsive. There's probably no greater fear or panic than something going wrong with your kids. Now, passage begins with a synagogue leader named Jairus. Now, a synagogue league is not like a, a priest. They're not like a, a clergy or something like that. A synagogue leader, ruler, was just kind of like the guy who managed the affairs of the synagogue. Like, he wasn't the one who preached every week. He'd organise who would preach, which was basically any biblically qualified man who was available and, and willing. They'd look after any manuscripts they had, do any repairs or get new copies if need be, all that type of things. And he had an emergency. Once again, we see Jesus is surrounded by crowds. We've seen that throughout the entirety of Mark's gospel. But Jairus, in his desperation, makes his way through the crowds, falling at Jesus' feet with an urgent request, imploring him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Now, Luke's account of this in chapter 8 not only says that he had a daughter who was about to die, but it was his one and only daughter. Now, you may or may not have children, but surely you can resonate with the panic of this being someone who is extremely close to you, who is so close to death. And we can see Jairus' desperation, a man who's quite a dignified position, to bust through the crowds, fall at Jesus' feet, recognising in this Jesus is the only hope that I have for my one and only daughter. We don't know whether or not he was overall supportive of the claims of Jesus. He may not have been. But we can presume that he's heard all the stories about the things that Jesus has been doing about the thousands he's been healing, casting out demons, and he thinks, if anyone can help, Jesus is our only hope. What I think is most likely, from what we've seen so far, everywhere Jesus goes, there are people who are wanting to be healed. I doubt that Jairus is the only person amongst that big crowd pressing in around Jesus who was requesting some form of healing. But he was the one whom Jesus focused his attention upon. And Jesus goes with Jairus, as does the excited crowd wanting to see what's going to happen. I reckon if I was Jairus, my spirits would have been lifted a little bit at this point when Jesus says, yep, I'm coming to your house. Jairus wouldn't have been ignorant. He would have been aware there are other people with big needs asking for healing of Jesus. No guarantee that Jesus is going to answer his request. But there's one that they've heard so much about, the great healer, that everyone who he's attempted to heal has been healed. He's coming to my house to see my daughter. There is hope. Until the interruption. As they're travelling and the crowds are pressing in around Jesus, there's a woman that shouldn't even be there. A woman who has had a bleeding condition for a period of 12 years, 
which is in the entire age of Jairus' daughter. Now, according to Jewish law, because of the, the blood issue that she had, she was required to stay away from others. She was considered unclean. She was ostracised. She was not allowed to touch anyone or anything or they would be considered to be unclean. Yet here she is in the middle of this crowd. Like Jairus, she was desperate. She'd been to all of the doctors. She spent every cent that she had and she had not even got better. In fact, she had got worse. So we see her desperation, one who knows that she's supposed to be away from everyone, comes in amongst the crowds, no doubt touching lots of people on her way through to Jesus, saying, this is the only hope I've got left. This one man, Jesus. There was no way that she could have got to Jesus without defying the rules and customs. But unlike Jairus, who spoke to Jesus, it appears she doesn't even consider herself worthy to address him. Rather, she'd heard reports about him, came up behind him in the crowd, and for she said, if I even touch his garments, I will be made well. Regardless of what she thought about herself, what she does says magnitudes about what she thought about Jesus. This Jesus has all power to save, to heal, all authority. If I just can touch some of his clothes, I know I'm going to be healed. Now keep in mind, Jewish law says if she touches someone, she makes them unclean. But on this occasion, the complete opposite is true. She touches Jesus' cloak. Jesus doesn't become defiled by her, rather she becomes instantly and immediately cleansed from something that every doctor and every saint that she's had has been unable to do anything about. This wasn't just relief from an illness or a condition. This was relief from complete social ostracization. No one touched her, no one wanted anything to do with her, She wouldn't have had a hug for 12 years. She was healed instantly without even asking or speaking to Jesus, without Jesus touching her or saying something to her. But Jesus did sense that power had gone out from him and immediately turns around in the crowd and says, who touched my garments? What sort of question is that? The disciples say, what sort of question is that? You've got people touching on you from every possible angle, every step you take, and you say, who's topped me? Who's been touching me? Everyone has been. But imagine Jairus. He's like, this guy's supposed to be coming to heal my dying daughter, and in the middle of the crowds pressing on him, he's asking who's touched him. Jesus, focus on your A game, take a B line, we're going straight to the house. But in response, this once ostracised woman falls before Jesus, identifying herself as the one who touched her. And this one whom everyone had looked down upon, kept away from, probably even had given names to her. Jesus looks upon her and calls her by the affectionate title, says, Daughter. 
Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now, one thing we've missed in our English translations is literally says, Daughter, your faith has saved you. Now, often there are times when Jesus heals people, he uses this language. But does he mean to communicate you have been saved from your illness or that you have been saved from your sin? And people often jump into two different camps on that one. Like if he was to be saying to her, you've been saved from your sin, you you could think back to the example of the the paralytic in Mark chapter 2, the one that in their desperation they, they dug through the roof to lower him down. And in Mark chapter 2, verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. In response to their faith, and again, we don't know the content of that faith, there's not even a record of the guy asking for his sins to be forgiven or recognizing his sins. And Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Both of them, there is a connection between your faith has made you well. Your faith, your sins are forgiven. But in both cases, the content of that faith is not articulated. And if it is to be an expression of forgiveness of sins, then that faith must mean nothing else other than faith in Jesus Christ. However, I'm more likely to think that he is saying that you have been saved from your sickness. You have been instantly healed. But then when he says, you're, go and you're, you will be healed from your disease, he's assuring her, this is permanent. You're not just losing your symptoms here and now. You, this underlying condition that's causing your symptoms, gone. And in the middle of Jesus speaking, a report then comes that Jairus' daughter has died, don't bother Jesus anymore. Imagine how annoyed you'd be if you were Jairus. It's like, my daughter could possibly still be alive if you hadn't done all this, oh, who touched me, businessman, all the crowds around you. Don't bother him. From Jairus' perspective, there couldn't have been a worse interruption. Now, we often think of interruptions as being a bad thing. But sometimes they can actually be a good thing and we don't see the way in which they're a blessing and we might look at that a bit later. First, we're going to look at a disrupted funeral. I think if there's any event you're going to disrupt, funeral's probably not the one to go for. But in response to the news that she's died, Jesus says, do not fear only believe. Now, I don't know how Jairus or anybody responded in their mind to that. But Jesus leaves the crowd behind, only taking now with himself Jairus and the three innermost of the circle, Peter, James and John. And as he enters the house, there's weeping and wailing because it was common in that era that you would hire professional mourners. There were people who for a job would gather at funerals to mourn, to weep and to wail. 
I don't think I'd get the gig because I'm just not expressive enough. I'd be hopeless at it. But just imagine the looks they would have given Jesus who arrives on the scene. When he enters, he says to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but sleeping. Now they might have known who Jesus was. They might not have known who Jesus was. But they're probably thinking, and it does say that they laughed, they're probably thinking, we do this for a living. We know the difference between a girl who is asleep and a girl who is dead. But now Jesus dismisses even more. Remaining in the room, it's now just Jesus, Peter, James, John, Jairus and his wife. Now, the disciples have seen Jesus heal many people from sicknesses. They've seen him cast out demons. But this girl's dead. She's really dead. She's not, she's not asleep. She's not in a coma. She's genuinely dead. But they've already seen Jesus do things go beyond their expectations. Remember last week when Jesus, when they were about to face impending death on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus calmed the, the wind and the seas and they were both were instantly still and they're like, who is this man that even the waves and, and the wind obey him? And now just with the simple words, Talitha Kumi, little girl, come up. What to them would have seemed ridiculously impossible, she just gets up, begins to walk. And I love the other minor detail. Jesus insists that food be brought to her. Isn't that a minor thing that it gets recorded there? Jesus is interested not only in the big, massive things, and you can't get much bigger than death, but also she's probably hungry. Get her something to eat. I think our prayer lives would benefit from remembering that Jesus is interested in the whole spectrum of our life, from the big, massive, to little and tiny. Because I think sometimes we fall into the trap of not wanting to bother Jesus with one or the other. Either we think, this one is way too big. This is too much to ask of Jesus. Why would he answer that for me? He's got it, probably got a lot on his plate. Ask him. He's omnipotent. He can deal with it. Ask him. It shows your trust in him. You don't have to, you don't have, to have insist that he does it. But you need to trust that he's certainly capable and able. Or we might go the other end of the spectrum. We might think, well, I've got this thing going on in my life, but it's pretty insignificant. Nothing like all these other people are going through. I won't bring that before Jesus. Don't want to bother him with something like that. He'll be like, how petty sort that out yourself. No, he's not. If anything, biblically, you'll see there is a pattern that values how God's people deal with little things. How we trust him in little things they become a reflection of how we trust him in big things. And if anything, seeing Jesus actively involved in the little things that we bring before him may give us confidence to come before him with the big things. 
If we go back to Jairus's house, usually it's inappropriate to disrupt a funeral. I think this one's okay. No surprise, once again, the people are amazed. That's fair enough, as you and I would be if we were there and someone who was dead was brought back to life. We see it throughout the Gospel of Mark, people are being amazed at Jesus. But as we flip to Mark chapter 6, we find it's Jesus who is amazed. We've seen crowds marvel, be amazed, astonished at Jesus' teaching, at the things at which he did. But there are two occasions in the Gospels where Jesus marvels. One here in Mark chapter 6 and the other in Matthew chapter 8. When he sees the faith of a centurion who has a servant who's unwell and Jesus says, I'll come to your house. And And the centurion says, I'm not worthy to have you come under my house. I'm just a guy under authority. I know you just say the word and things get happen. You can just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus marveled and says, I have never seen a faith like this in all Israel. Jesus returns to his hometown of Nazareth and he's done exactly what he's done before. Back in Capernaum, he's preaching in the synagogue. Remember, synagogues don't have a clergy, so any male who's qualified is able to to speak in that setting, hence why Jesus often does it, and also the apostles throughout the book of Acts. But in Mark chapter 1, where Jesus teaches in the synagogue in Capernaum, people say, what is this teaching? He has an authority unlike any of the scribes that we've ever heard. And they're amazed at the authority and the power which he's expressed. Yet when he does the same in the synagogue in his hometown, they see the same authoritative teaching, they see the same miraculous works, but respond to it differently. You see, these people have probably saw Mary while she was pregnant. They've seen Jesus growing up. Like, oh, this is our local lad Jesus. So when it comes to his ministry, I think... Where did this Jesus get this from? Now we know who he is. We know his mum and dad. We know his brother has seen him grow up. And in asking their questions, they think, there's nothing special about this Jesus, they're saying. Someone must have, someone who is of greater must have given him something. And Jesus identifies there are two settings in which a prophet is not honoured. His hometown and amongst his family. People were so familiar with him that they couldn't see the truth of who he really was. John 7 verse 5 records how Jesus' own brothers did not believe in Jesus at that point in time, although they are recorded as being amongst the disciples after the resurrection. And because of their unbelief, which Jesus was astonished at, says Jesus could not do any mighty works except to heal a few people. Imagine that being your bad day. Your bad day when things where you say, I can't really do anything, is a day when you heal two or three sick people. But what does it mean that Jesus couldn't do any mighty works there? Was he somehow constrained by their lack of belief? Is it somehow Jesus limited? Of 
course not. But it was inconsistent with his mission. Previously we've seen both of Jairus and the woman. There was faith and he did the extraordinary. We've seen throughout the book of Mark that Jesus isn't about just putting on a, on a show for healing, for people to be amazed. He often would teach and then he would do these works to authenticate the authority that he had in the things in which he had said. But Jesus marvels at their unbelief that they would see the Son of God and be indifferent. And so he continues with that which he says is important to go off into the villages to teach. So what do we make of these, this passage? Well, there's two things I want to reflect upon. Jesus' perspective of interruptions and Jesus' perspective of lost causes. Firstly, on interruptions. Now, if you know me, you know I'm quite a task-focused person. I like I get my mindset on, like, this is what I'm doing, and if I get interrupted, I feel like you lose the whole flow, you lose some time, it's inconvenient, I get a bit impatient at times. And it was funny, because when I was writing that, just as I was writing that, the dog just started going off barking at something, which was wonderful for my concentration at the time. When Jesus was on the way to Jairus' house, that was important. He was going to, to a girl who was almost dead. And right there and then was an interruption. Now, if that was me, I would have put the head down. No, dying girl, got to go, got to go, got to go, got to go. If Jesus was like me, that woman would have been left in her condition. In the end, healing came to both. Interruptions are not your enemy. There can be good interruptions, there can be bad interruptions. But I think if we start with the default position that all interruptions to what I had planned to do are my enemy to be opposed at all time, then I think we've shut ourselves off to what God might want to be doing in some of those interruptions. And something I need to keep working on. Praying, God, help me to discern when you want me to be interrupted that I might actually see what is around me and then secondly his perspective on lost causes a phrase not found in Jesus vocabulary because just think about some of the things we've looked at the last couple of weeks we've seen him with the disciples out on the sea experienced fishermen the boat's starting to fill with water and they say don't you care that we're going to die they've decided no lost cause we're going to die Jesus calms the sea, calms the wind. There's a demoniac who has a legion of demons that nobody can bind. He put, they put chains on him. They can't. He just busts out of them. And Jesus says, come out of him. And he sits, fully dressed, in his own mind, at Jesus' feet. You've got a, 12, a woman who's been cast outcast by society for 12 years with a bleeding condition, tried every medical avenue, lost every penny along the way, instantly healed just by touching Jesus. And a girl who was dead. Every single one of these that we would have deemed to be lost cause was easy. It was 
just part of what's simple for Jesus to do. We call them difficult. We call them a write-off because we're finite. There's limited what, what we can do about anything. Sometimes we need to ask, who have we written off? Who have we written off that God cannot work in that person's life? What situations have we written off? This is too far, God. God cannot intervene. Because everything you identify as being impossible, you say, in this area of my life, Jesus is powerless to act. He's not powerless to act in any sphere of our life. It may not be according to our timetable. And it may even actually be for our good that he's not acting for a particular time or even at all. But any single person, myself, yourselves, anybody, regardless of how you perceive them, are not outside of the saving power and grace of Jesus. Nor is he to do it begrudgingly, where he thinks, ah, you have been so wicked. You've shown such contempt towards me, but I know I did say that if you believe and you turn to me in faith, I suppose I'd better do it. No, he would speak in the way in which he spoke to this ostracised woman. Say, daughter, son, my child. He has compassion, love and mercy for all who seek him, whatever the background. The only setting where Jesus was not actively at work wasn't amongst the ones that were write-offs or seemingly impossible. It was amongst those who thought they knew who Jesus was but hadn't responded to him in faith. That's quite confronting. To think that there are familiar with who Jesus is, or at least think they have, but either haven't perceived him completely or correctly, and as a result, they refuse to repent and turn to him in faith. Jesus marvels at that, that someone could look upon him and not believe and respond in faith. Nor do you want to be the person that's decided in their own mind which people or what situations Jesus is able to get involved in and to rescue. I wanted to close with a reminder of some of the wonderful words of Ephesians 3. May it shape our prayers too as we pray for one another. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with all power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us.
To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that that we can't do everything. Forgive us from times when we think that the world is determined by what we can or can't do ourselves. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Lord, you are able to do absolutely anything that you set out to do. There is no person, there is no situation that is impossible for you. Forgive us from times when we see our hardships or we see difficult people and we write them off rather than bringing them in prayer before the one who has authority and power above all and who is able to work in all and through all. Give us faith also too to trust you in all things, knowing that as we bring something before you, it does not demand or require that you will respond the way that we would like you to respond. But help us to remember who you truly are, that we realise it's not a burden to bring anything before you, regardless of how big it is, but also to see your love and your care that has concern for even the minute details of the lives of your people. We thank you for Jesus, who is our life, who is our strength, who is our only hope, not just in these desperate situations that we've read this morning, but in all things. And in whose name we give you thanks. Amen.